Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Charles I and the Duke of Buckingham, his close uh, friend and, and advisor, were really in complete control of the destinies of Britain. Or at least we saw they thought. They were in control relatively. They controlled the situation politically, absolutely. What they didn't control, as I explained last time, was the, was the money, the finances. The bulk of the money in the kingdom was in the hands of the House of Commons, the lower house, in which uh, the bourgeoisie, you could say the, the nascent bourgeoisie, predominated the merchants, the uh, wealthy traders of the city of, uh, of London, uh, the, the richest sections of society, outside the nobility, which was concentrated, of course, in the House of Lords. However, even in the nobility, there's been a lot of confusion about this because uh, it is true that certain of the nobility, particularly in the early stages, the stage that I'm dealing with now, actually united with the lower house against the king. Uh, even they desired to have more control and to clip the wings of the king, if you like, something which the king, of course, did not uh, entirely approve of. On the contrary, he and Buckingham had uh, big ideas about uh, their political and military future. They were very interested in warfare, uh, at least in principle. They desired some kind of uh, great military success on the continent of Europe, some diplomatic success to make up for the signal failure of their previous policy in relation to Spain, which was now a shipwreck. So much of a shipwreck that before he died, James actually decided to, de to, 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 to declare war on Spain. And that was still on the statute books. That was agreed, actually, by Parliament. They agreed. Of course, they would agree, being a Protestant Parliament, they would be quite enthusiastic about the idea with war against Spain, the principal Catholic uh, power in the world. Yes, but when it came to giving money for a war, uh, after James died and Charles requested funds, of course, they they balked at it, they, 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 they dragged their heels, which caused considerable irritation in Charles, who was anxious for, the, as I say, to proceed to military action against Spain as soon as possible. Uh, the Parliament was dragging their heels for a purpose. As I explained last time, for the whole of the previous period, the bourgeoisie in Parliament had been gradually, by degrees, whittling away the king's prerogative, if you like, and, and, and developing the, their own powers, their own privileges, as, as they call it. And they used money for this purpose. Of course, that was their principal weapon. In fact, it was virtually their only weapon. And therefore, by withholding the money for the king to wage war, they were exercising, they had a lever then uh, to exert uh, pressure on him and to gain uh, concessions. Trouble was that uh, Charles was not very expert in making concessions. He wasn't keen on concessions at all, since he was only answerable to God, as he said many times. I'm the anointed of God. I'm only answerable to God alone, not to man, not to parliament, not to anybody. 
And therefore the seeds of a conflict were there. The elements of a conflict were already implicit in this whole situation. In the end, uh, Charles got tired of, of, of waiting and he decided to launch, he and Buckingham, Buckingham in, in particular, decided to launch a military adventure. They decided to attack the Spanish port of Cadiz, it's a seaport, an important Spanish seaport on the, on the Atlantic uh, part of Spain, which uh, was carried out in, in, in 1625. Buckingham duly led a fleet. It was raised by money, raised by dubious means, uh, out, outside the parliament, because parliament was not forthcoming with the cash. Charles resorted to a tactic of forced loans, which you can imagine was not particularly popular with the population. People were forced to give money. In principle, it was voluntary. In reality, it was not voluntary at all. If you didn't stump up the money which the king was demanding, then you could be put in prison. You could be sent to the Tower of London, and that wasn't a nice place to to be. And even poor people were affected. Poor people, if they weren't prepared to cough up something for the king's uh, wars, then they, would, they couldn't get money, but therefore they were, they were press-ganged into the army or the navy, which again was not a very nice experience, as you, as you will see. But what happened in Cadiz? Anyway, by hook or by crook, they, Charles and Buckingham managed to cobble together a fleet, which they equipped and uh, armed, and sent with high hopes to the port of Cadiz. The fleet actually landed in Cadiz, and the sailors uh, got on shore, and then dis disaster struck, you know. <laughs> the English sailors, being English sailors, you know, uh, they discovered a large warehouse full of, guess what, Spanish wine, fine Spanish wine. There's very good wine <laughs> in the south of Spain, you know. It's the home of... Uh, sherry and so on, which of course uh, they found quite delightful, quite very much to their taste, and they, they, they got stuck into these barrels of wine, which they devoured with gusto, got blind drunk, and of course they missed the opportunity. Uh, of course it's got its funny side, but it wasn't really funny at all, it was a, a complete disaster. The Spaniards uh, sounded the alarm, they had time to regroup their forces, they counterattacked, and they inflicted heavy losses on the English. They, they, they lost, if my memory serves me correctly, correctly, they lost about a third of, of all their men. A figure of 7,000 uh, sticks in my mind. That may be wrong, but uh, you can check it. Anyway, it was, it was a complete and absolute disaster. And particularly for Buckingham. Instead of coming home uh, showered with uh, laurel wreaths and, uh, and medals and, uh, and honors, he came home in, in complete under a cloud of disgrace. It was a national disgrace, which uh, deepened uh, the, the already existing hostility to Buckingham. Buckingham was a hated figure. He was Charles's favorite. He was the darling, the golden boy of the uh, inner circle and so on. King's main trusted friend and advisor. Oh, yes. But as far as the broad mass of the people was concerned, he was extremely uh, unpopular. And therefore, after the, the Cadiz disaster, Parliament went on the offensive. Of course. They went on the offensive demanding uh, accounts. And by the way, Cadiz was very expensive. It cost a lot of money. And uh, Parliament was stuck with the bills. And the bills needed to be paid. And therefore, there was an outcry against particularly Buckingham at first very cautiously. Because, you see, there's, there's a common uh, feature of all autocracies autocratic monarchs in history, that the opponents don't initially attack the monarch, appointed by, after all by God, 
therefore a difficult target to, to aim at. But they would aim at his ministers, his counselors, the evil counselors, the wicked counselors. That's quite common. And that was the case here. There was an outcry against Buckingham and an attempt to have him impeached. The word impeachment is well known to you from recent events in the United States of America. But of course, uh, the, the attack was led by people like John Hamden, John Pym, who will feature uh, quite, uh, quite prominently in the next few weeks in our discussions. But there were, there were other leaders, equally if not more significant. One in particular, a significant figure by the name of Thomas Wentworth. Now here's an interesting case. Thomas Wentworth is probably the most outspoken, along with John Eliot, he was another one. But uh, uh, Thomas Wentworth was perhaps the most outspoken uh, rebel and uh, the most uh, aggressive uh, opponent of the king uh, in Parliament. Uh, and of course, he, he was bought off. The ruling class, you know, has got ways and means of dealing with rebels. Uh, they've got different tactics. They've got the, the one, one method is to, to lock them up in the Tower of London or chop their head off. That's one possibility. Another far more economical and effective possibility is to buy them off, which Charles did quite uh, frequently. And he did so in this case. Eventually, that's uh, for, for a future uh, discussion. But Thomas Wentworth was taken into Charles' confidence, was praised despite his, uh, his uh, rebellious speeches, or in, in fact, because of that, he was praised and uh, showered with compliments and so on. What a great speech you made in Parliament and so on. And eventually, he was made the Earl of Stafford and became the king's favourite. Uh, he came to a sticky end, but we'll discuss that, as I say on a future occasion. But in relation to the attacks against Buckingham, Charles was absolutely intransigent, absolutely intransigent. I've got a couple of quotes here, if I can find them, which is my usual difficulty. What did we have here? Just one second. I've got some precise speeches from, ah yes, here we are. That's a good one. Page 17, I went first. Yes, here we are. Yes, Hamden and, and Pym were demanding an inquiry into the Cadiz disaster, and Charles replied as, as follows. I see, he said to the House, I see that you especially aim at the Duke of Buckingham. He wasn't fooled, but he, he knew what they were, what, what they were after. That you, uh, you, you especially aim at the Duke of Buckingham. I must let you know that I will not allow any of my servants to be questioned among you, much less such as are, are of eminent place and near to me. Eminent place and near to me. That's Buckingham, of course. And, of course, when they still persisted, they did persist because uh, now they, they, they felt they had the bull uh, by the horns after the Cadiz episode. He resorted to threats, very thinly veiled threats, and he said the following. Remember, said he, remember that parliaments are altogether in my power for their calling, sitting, and dissolution. And therefore, I find the fruits of them, uh, as I find the fruits of them uh, to be good or evil, they are to continue or not to be. And that doesn't require any elaboration. It's a, it's a plain threat. You carry on. You guys carry on getting on my nerves and I will dissolve you because that's within my power to do which of course it was and this therefore the, the, this uh, a bitter struggle uh, 
continued. One of the ideas which, uh, which was uh, rumored at the time, I think there was a basis, I'm sure there was a basis for it, is that Charles wanted money not so much for uh, to fight against uh, Spain, but to raise a regiment of a thousand German mercenary cavalry to bring to Britain. Now, what's the purpose of a thousand German mercenary cavalrymen in London? Is it to um, stand outside like the, like the present uh, uh, guardsmen in horse, horse, horsemen in the, in the parade of London, in Whitehall, for the benefit of tourists to take photographs? Well, there were very few tourists and no cameras at that time. No, no, no. That was a direct threat to use foreign mercenaries, and don't forget the Hundred Years' War was raging at the time, to disperse, if, if necessary, to take action against Parliament, to disperse Parliament. And of course, once, once they discovered that, that really uh, annoyed people, as you could well, uh, as you could well imagine. Now, far from taking any, any notice of, of, of this, Charles dug his, his, his heels in. And in the middle of all this dispute, you had what was called the Petition of Right. Parliament drafted, they, they, they now uh, realized that this was a serious confrontation. That's the point. It was a serious confrontation between uh, the absolute monarchy and Parliament, between the bourgeoisie and the, the monarchy, in, uh, to all intents and purposes. What happens when the, uh, the, uh, the unstoppable force beats the immovable object? That's a good question. An explosion will inevitably occur. That's the answer to that one. And of course, the, the parliamentarians drafted a document called the Petition of Right. It was like a kind of transitional program, if you like. Everything is mixed up in this, by the way. You can't separate. Religion, politics, economics is all mixed up in, in, in this. And in the Petition of Right, you can see this. A lot of it is directed against the Catholics, against the influence of Catholics, against any concessions to Catholics. And this is directed against Maria, Henrietta Maria, the, the Queen, and her influence at court, which again is coming dangerously near a direct confrontation with Charles uh, himself. Now, Charles, is, I see that he's, he's often presented as a poor chap, uh, a little bit naive and a uh, bit weak and so on, all right, a little bit vain, but there were who's. Any, nobody's perfect kind of thing. And then famous, and this was, this was, this was the case in a recent BBC, a disgraceful, a disgraceful program put on by the BBC, complete distortion of the English Revolution, um, that Pym, for example, is presented as a scoundrel and an intriguer and a, a, the villain of the piece, if you like. Well, as Charles is presented, all right, he did many wrong things, but he was a, in, basically an honest chap. And so no such thing. You better believe it. No such thing. Charles was a Machiavellian politician, if ever there was one. A liar, a swindler, a cheat, an intriguer, a maneuverer, all these epithets uh, suit him very, very well. And he was like, you see, this is classical, his behavior in relation to the petition of, of right, this is uh, classical. He pretended to go along when he saw that the, there's such a groundswell of opinion, particularly directed against Buckingham, who was hated by most people. He pretended to retreat. Yes, I can see your points of guys. I can see your points of view. Well, maybe we can compromise. What he wanted to do was to verbally accept the petition of right in words, 
get hold of the money, which, which, which is what, what the whole tussle was about, he wanted to get uh, a bill through Parliament giving him funds. And then he could safely ignore it, cons consign it to the waste paper basket, wipe, wipe his backside with it. That's what it was. That's what he was angling at. Yeah, but it didn't quite work out like that, much to his surprise and disgust. While he was maneuvering, it's a model of insincerity, completely insincere, complete liar, liar, and so on, trying to deceive people. Of course, he didn't deceive anyone, incidentally. By this time, the parliament had got his measure. They saw that Charles was a completely uh, insincere, unreliable, lying rogue. It was not, and of course, he wasn't fooled by the parliament, who presented the petition of right in the most, in the most, uh, Servile terms, the most polite terms. I got the quote here somewhere. If I can find it, can I find it? Doesn't matter anyway. It's full of uh, expressions. Dread Majesty, dread Majesty, we humbly, your servants humbly present this petition, and so on and so forth. Your poor Parliament, words like this. That didn't fool the king, and the king didn't fool Parliament either. Here are two class enemies fighting it out fighting it out and of course in warfare deceit of course that naturally plays a role so charles continued to play this role and then he had a shock because when finally the petition the bill for the petition of right was presented it not only got the overwhelming approval i'm not sure if it wasn't unanimous probably not unanimous, overwhelming approval anyway in the lower house it was also approved without amendment in the House of Lords. That was a shock. That must have shocked uh, Charles to, to, the, to the roots. Because the, here was the main basis of his political support, the House of Lords voting against him. That was a, a terrific news. And therefore, very reluctantly, he was forced to sign. All that was required now was the royal signature, and he was compelled given the balance of forces, he was compelled to sign. Yes, and uh, I think the phrase, as he was signing, he muttered, let it be passed into law as is, as is desired, or something like that. He muttered between gritted teeth as he scratched his signature on, on this, uh, what he would consider to be infamous document. Of course, even, even then he had no intention whatsoever of allowing it to be passed, as we shall see, because uh, if I can remember the actual procedure, I think it was on the 7th of June, uh, that would be 1626, the 7th of June, I think that the, uh, I'm speaking from memory, so hope I haven't made a mistake, uh, it, it was on the 7th of June that, that uh, the, 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 the bill was passed. On the 12th of June, that's in, 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 practically immediately, the Parliament then honoured their uh, part of the bargain and they came across with Quite a large subsidy, I can't remember how much, more than 300,000 pounds, I believe. Again, I'm speaking from memory, open to correction. But they came across with, this, with this, a substantial subsidy. And of course, Charles was very polite and very submissive and very uh, collaborative, as long as his coffers were empty. Once he had the money in his pockets, he changed completely. And with the matter of, uh, a matter of days, on the 24th, I think, something like that, he dissolved Parliament in order to save his friend uh, uh, Buckingham from impeachment, because that was, that was the next step. If Parliament was going to be allowed to carry on like this, the, the petition of right itself was, was a blow against everything Charles had been doing. A sharp criticism, a, a rejection 
of illegal methods of taxation, a rejection of forced loans, a rejection of another little charming tactic of billeting soldiers uh, without payment in, in, in people's houses and so on, uh, and of conscripting people into the argument, into the army or navy that refused to pay taxes, things of this sort. Incidentally, when Charles was carrying in, in, in the same year, uh, 1626, yes, that's right, when he was pushing forward the, these illegal forced loans, he had all the preachers in the land, an order was issued to the Anglican Church to preach in sun, on Sundays, and church attendance was, was compulsory, by the way, that everyone was obliged, morally and religiously obliged, to pay the king the money that he was demanding, this kind of thing. And all of this was thrown out by the traditional right. When it was approved, there was general rejoicing in, in, the, in the country. There was general rejoicing throughout the land. Uh, church bells rang in every village and hamlet and so on. Bonfires was lit all over the country. People were dancing in the street and celebrating and so on. Believing that everything was solved. Now that the king had graciously given his consent to the uh, petition of right, everything was solved. Of course, nothing was solved. Petition right was this. Just a scrap of paper, that's all. And the fundamental antagonisms and problems and contradictions remain unresolved. And therefore, Charles immediately resorted to yet another dissolution of Parliament. And immediately after that, there's another interesting incident. He launched another military adventure, again headed by the Duke of Buckingham, who, by the way, throughout all these proceedings, remained completely impervious to any criticism wearing his his gorgeous robes and his jewels and his chain of officers. He sat, actually sat, took his seat in the House of Lords to listen to the proceedings against him with an air of complete and absolute indifference, showing contempt for Parliament and all its, uh, and all its works. Now he was made commander of the fleet once again, despite the disaster of Cadiz, and it was dispatched to France. Uh, Buckingham had done a deal with uh, the Cardinal Richelieu, who was the power behind the throne in the France of Louis XIII, uh, that they would, be, they would help the French, get a load of this, to defeat the French Protestants. There was a powerful Protestant movement in France called the Huguenots. The Huguenots. The Huguenots. They were particularly powerful, powerful throughout France, but they had particularly had a powerful base in the island of in, in, in La Rochelle, which is a beautiful island off the coast of, of Brittany, I think, or France anyway. And the Protestant had turned that into a, a stronghold, which is being besieged by the French king. And Charles and Buckingham secretly, but yet again, secret diplomacy, did a deal with the King of France that Charles would send the English fleet to help them to put down the Huguenots, the French Protestants, if you please. Of course, they didn't tell that to the sailors. They didn't tell it to anybody. They told the sailors that they were going to be uh, sent out to attack the Spaniards or something like that. A complete lie. When the sailors found out, however, the news got around that they, they were, no, they were being sent to La Rochelle to fight against the French Protestants, then, of course, the mood changed. The sailors were furious. Absolutely furious. They wrote what is what is known uh, technically as a round robin. That's to say, a petition signed in a circle such that the, nobody can see who the ringleaders are. They signed a, a round robin, which they hid in the prayer book of the captain. Captain, a man by the name of Pennington. 
Well, I think it must have been an honest man. It must have been a sincere chap, you know, courageous man. He discovered this uh, thing. And when he, when he found out that it was true that they were going to be sent against the Huguenots, he immediately turned the ship around and returned to, to England. And the rest of the fleet mutinied, both the officers and the men. There was a mutiny in the fleet against this. And therefore, that particular thing ended in a complete uh, debacle. Yet again, and a further scandal in relation to, uh, to, to Buckingham, the, the demands for his impeachment still continued to grow. He wasn't impeached in the end, but he ended in a, in a different way. Now, Charles already had had a shock, a severe shock at his defeat in Parliament, his defeat in the House of Lords that must have knocked his confidence to a considerable degree. But an even bigger blow was waiting for him. He worked out immediately, if you can imagine this, another plan for an in, a naval intervention. This time, he said, in order to defend La Rochelle. I wish they'd make their mind up. This time, to defend. In the meantime, Buckingham, it seems, had quarreled with Richelieu. He was in the habit of quarreling with people. He quarreled with Richelieu, and he was now pressing for war with France. Uh, was. Uh, was, was Buckingham part of part of part of his strategy? This is this is by the this is a PS by the by. Part of his of, of Buckingham's tactics at this time was to sow discord between uh, King Charles and his wife Henrietta Maria, she being French. You see, if he could if he could cause offence to the uh, French Queen, then that would stir up the French King and give a pretext for war, which actually occurred. Actually occurred. Parliament had been demanding all the time. They were afraid to, you see, the marriage contract, as I explained last time, the marriage contract between Charles and Henrietta Maria included the provision that she should have the right to have her own people, her own French priests and father confessors and so on. That was, that was an internationally binding diplomatic agreement. It was a treaty. Okay. The, even the Parliament never questioned that. What they, what they said is that there were too many English Catholics floating around court, and that, uh, that must end because it was a threat to Protestantism in Britain. That was what they said. But now Buckingham went far further. He put it into Charles's head that the, the, all these French guys at court were, caused, were causing a lot of problems, were insulting him, treating him badly, treating him with disrespect, and they had to be sent back to France. Eventually, Charles was taken in by the accepted this argument. And sent them back to France, which was which was breaking an international treaty, something which had been agreed, which caused, of course, severe uh, affront. It was an insult to the Queen. Obviously, Anne Maria was at that time her relations with Charles had deteriorated because of Buckingham's interference. Interference, yes, but in France it had the desired effect. King Louis of France immediately confiscated all the English ships. I think there was 120 English ships. Is sitting in French courts, which were confiscated immediately by the French. That was an excuse for war. Charles immediately declared war on France. And there was a fleet being assembled in Portsmouth. And guess who was supposed to be in charge? Well, of course, the Duke of Buckingham was in charge. Bad mistake, by the way. Very bad mistake, as it turned out. You see, in August... Uh, 1668, uh, the Duke of Buckingham, full of confidence, boisted up by the support of the king, thinking that he could walk on water, that he could do anything that he wished, 
turned up in uh, Portsmouth, went into a pub called The Greyhound. I don't know if it still exists, but the, the pub, pub called the, the, the Greyhound Inn in the, in the High Street, where he was negotiating with some French guys. I don't know who these Frenchmen were, but he was discussing with them. It seems that they had a bit of an argument because as he was coming out of the door of the, the, the Greyhound pub, he was looking back backwards and shouting at this French guy. And obviously they were having some kind of an altercation. What they didn't see, what nobody saw, was what was lurking in the shadows outside of the Greyhound. There was a man with a cloak. The man's name was John Felton. And underneath the cloak, he clasped a cheap knife which he'd bought uh, from a cutler's shop in Tower Hill a few days before. Now, John Felton is not a name which is generally known. Everyone else is known. Uh, Pin, Hamden, they're all known. Uh, uh, John Felton is not known today. He was very well known at the time. John Felton was a seaman. I don't know whether he was a captain or an ordinary seaman who had served in the Cadiz exploits of. Uh, the Duke of Buckingham, who had a profound hatred of, of the Duke, as many people did, who considered him to be the main enemy of the English people, the main cause of all their problems and so on. And he saw himself, as a Protestant, of course, would subsequently become an, an army officer, a lieutenant, I think, in the army. The, he left the army, and now he was probably not doing anything very much. According to the reports of the time, he was a very quiet inward-looking, introverted kind of man who didn't speak very much, but entertained a profound hatred for the Duke of, uh, of Buckingham. And he saw himself, John, John Felton, saw himself as the hand of God to rid the world of a tyrant, of a, of a monster. He was lurking in the shadows, waiting patiently for the Duke to appear. And eventually his patience was rewarded. 23rd of August, 1628, the Duke of, uh, of Buckingham stepped outside of the pub and was immediately stabbed in the heart by John Felton. It was so quick, the action was so quick, Felton disappeared immediately from the scene. Nobody saw what happened. Nobody knew who'd killed the dog. And his dying words were, he must have been surprised more than anything else, was, the rogue hath killed me, or the villain hath killed me. And with those words, he took the knife out of his breast and fell to the ground dead. There was a consternation. There was uproar, of course. And uh, eventually people were looking for uh, the murderer. They caught the, some unfortunate Frenchman, one of those he was having an argument, I suppose. And they caught this Frenchman. Now, here's an interesting point. Just to, to see the character of John Felton, who apart from being very brave, was also very honest and principled. He stepped forward, he didn't have to do this, he stepped forward from the crowd and he said, I am he that you are searching for. Arrest me, let no innocent man be punished. So he gave his own life uh, quite selflessly. In, in and in his trial, by the way, he maintained the same courageous stand. He never apologized, never showed any remorse, defended his action on the grounds that he was ridding the, the country of a, of a traitor and, a, and, and, and uh, an evil man that was undoing the, the good of the, of the kingdom. When Charles discovered the death of his favorite, of his counselor, the man that he depended on, 
for so many years since his earliest youth, he was profoundly sick. So much so, they said that he spent two days collapsed on a sofa weeping. That may or not be, may well be true, may, may not be true, we don't know. That's what is stated. But he insisted subsequently, he went to the treasury, demanded a large sum of money to pay for a lavish funeral for the Duke, which was done. He had his lavish state funeral and was buried with pomp and circumstance in, in Westminster Abbey. John Felton, by contrast, was sentenced to be hanged like a common criminal and ended up on the gallows in Tyburn uh, in November of that year. Not only that, they took their revenge by, they stated that um, his body should be not left on the gallows, but they should be, should be taken down and sent to Portsmouth and publicly displayed. Now that was a bad mistake. It was meant to uh, expose uh, this monstrous criminal, this murderous one. On the contrary, uh, Filton's body turned into a, a point of, uh, of, 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 re of pilgrimage, of worship. People came to pay homage to this courageous man who was regarded as a national hero. Uh, ballads were sung in his honor. I've got a couple here. But, uh, if I can find them amidst the general chaos. Ah, just a minute. You will have to wait while I check and find where it is. Page 25 and 27. One second. I'll be with you in a moment. Here we are. Ah, yes. 25. 20. Yes, there we are. Um, oh, I, I forgot to mention this. To, sh to show you how unpopular Buckingham was, he was really hated, you know. His personal physician, his doctor, his name is Dr. Lamb, was caught by an angry mob. They recognized him. He was pulled out of his carriage and he was so badly beaten. He was beaten up so badly, he died. And the following ballad was, was circulating at the time. Let Charles and George do what they can. The Duke shall die like Dr. Lamb. And he did. Not, 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 not long after that. And when Felton was executed, ballads were, many ballads were circling. Ballads, poems, popular statements were, were, were celebrating his life. Here's a couple. The Duke is dead. And we are rid of strife. Felton's hand that took away his life. And here's another one, referring, to, referring to, to, to Buckingham. The rotten member that can have no cure, members of a limb, a part of your body. The, the rotten member that can have no cure must be cut off to have the body cure. Sure, thank you, buddy. To have the body sure. These were circulating. Uh, there was a man, that uh, quite a, a, a wealthy chap, actually, that was, uh, was sentenced to uh, 2,000 pounds fine, that was a lot of money, for making a, a toast to the health of John Felton, saying that, he, that uh, the, Duke, the Duke of Buckingham had joined King James in hell. He was uh, sentenced for, for that, and to have his ears cut off. It was fortunate his father's a rich man, he got him off. But that was the situation that existed. Now, 
I think I'd better draw, draw a, a line at this stage. This is a critical point. You see, what this all means, you have to look deep down. I've said, I've dedicated all of the last two episodes to discussing the, the, the conflict at the top, the, 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 the class, the antagonism, the unbridgeable gap between parliament and, and king. Yes, but at the bottom, the whole of society was seething with discontent, seething with discontent. And the main point you have to understand is this, so far, the struggle, the struggle is being confined to parliament. Although even in that struggle, one can see the, the dim outlines of civil war. The outlines of it are there quite clearly for, for anyone with eyes to see. But at the, at the bottom, there is this seething discontent, which was, until recently was not given proper uh, acknowledgement by the historians. And even this murder of uh, this uh, assassination of the Duke of Buckingham revealed that. And the, the enormous sympathy that John Felton had among the, well, the Duke of, of Buckingham had no sympathy other than with the court clique who organized his pompous funeral. But John Felton was a national hero. Now, you see here, for anyone with eyes to see, there is a danger, isn't there? There's a clear threat, there's a clear warning here. The murder of the Duke was a warning to, uh, to Charles. But Charles, as we know, uh, being Charles, being the man that he was, was deaf to all warnings with the consequences that we will see subsequently. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.